The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Your resolve is the greatest rebuke. Thursday, April 18th, this is the world. I'm Aaron Schachter sitting in for Marco Werman. President Obama came to Boston today to say this city's resolve is the greatest rebuke to whoever committed the attacks on Monday's marathon. If they sought to intimidate us, to terrorize us, to shake us from those values that Duvall described, the values that make us who we are as Americans, well, it should be pretty clear by now that they picked the wrong city to do it. Also today, crowdsourcing the evidence and pondering how much security Boston is willing to tolerate. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. We begin our program today in Boston's South End at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross. The crowd streamed in this morning to attend an interfaith memorial for the victims of Monday's marathon bombings. President Obama attended to pay his respects. Your resolve is the greatest rebuke to whoever committed this heinous act. If they sought to intimidate us, to terrorize us, to shake us from those values that Duvall described, the values that make us who we are as Americans, well, it should be pretty clear by now that they picked the wrong city to do it. Not here in Boston. Not here in Boston. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of police officers that are spread across Boston's entire South End. From what we can see, the streets are cordoned off with metal gates, and there are sniffer dogs. The security is extremely tight. People were waiting this morning four or five blocks to get into the church service, and we spoke to some of them while they were here. My name is Denise Campbell. It's just good to see all these people here, you know, to come together just for, you know, one moment, you know, for prayer, for what happened to the people in the bombings. Do you think that Boston might change in any way because of this? Not attack? really, because we're strong. We all pull together. If security has to change for the marathon next year, for public places? It might be you- martial law. I'm ready for it. For all the guys around to, with the guns, you know how they say that you never thought it would be? where you lived, yeah. you know, but it is now. Jennifer Lemoyne, I'm here because I am a member of a nurse and leadership at Mass General, so we're here to pay respects and unite and represent those who are at the hospital suffering and victims and the great nurses that cared for them. The way the city reacted was amazing, and the fact that the 
fatalities were at the number they were at. I just don't think you'd see it in any other city because of the medical professionals that are here. We train for this every year, and we never thought we'd have to actually use it. And unfortunately, we did, but we were trained well, and that's why there's so many survivors, really. And how much would you be willing to accept? Armed guards at your door, metal detectors? Yeah, because I think that's unfortunately the climate we're in. This is the world that we're in right now, and if it means being protected and feeling safe and the public feeling safe, then, yeah, I'm willing to have that. Uh, my name is William Burke, and I'm here with my wife, Patricia. I'm the headmaster of a school in uh, right outside of Boston, and one of our faculty members uh, was hurt in the blast and is right around the corner in the hospital. So you want to come and, and pray for him and for all the victims and um, represent his family and our school community. Can you foresee changes now to Boston and the area in the wake of this event? Oh, I think there will be changes as there were after 9-11. I've been very proud to be a Bostonian in these days. I think the solidarity is terrific. The four words I have to describe what we've all endured are senseless, violence, cowardice, and evil. And you can't make sense out of the senseless, but we can pray and we can access what I believe to be the two most powerful forces in the universe, God and one another through whom God works. And that's what we're doing as fully and as well as we can. All over Boston, come let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine. This little light of mine. A group of college students waiting to get into the interfaith service in Boston this morning. The story of what happened in Boston is still painfully fresh, but it's only one of many in recent months that have reminded us of how vulnerable we are and the turbulent times we live in. The shootings at Sandy Hook were just four months ago, followed by the bitter gun control debate that came to a head this week. Philip Gorevich has been thinking about America's experience with violence and guns and how it's all viewed in the rest of the world. Gorevich is a staff writer at The New Yorker, author of The Ballad of Abu Ghraib. In most of the rest of the world, private gun ownership is uh, highly controlled, highly limited. And I can certainly say that in countries that I've been sent to to cover massacres and uh, extreme violence. And those uh, are of places the sort, like Rwanda and Like Congo. Rwanda, like Congo, places that in our minds are synonymous with, uh, you know, school children being slaughtered in their schools, for instance, where we like to think that's the sort of thing we don't do. And we talk about it as those places and those people. They hear about things like Newtown. They hear about the regularity with which Americans are killed by fellow citizens carrying extraordinarily powerful weapons that they're supposedly legally entitled to. And they think, we're crazy. They say it flat out, you're crazy. They cannot understand it. And they cannot understand that we actually have a choice to restrict this and that the public does not fire the politicians that endanger their children because their lives are also defined by, to some degree, by that kind of violence. And these are countries where many people live by hunting, and they do not feel the need to have AK-47s or assault rifles or any of the kind of weaponry that we see or unlimited access to ammunition. Now, there are well, often... I, I wonder... Sorry to interrupt. Sure. I, I wonder, Philip, if mass casualty events like what happened in Newtown actually um, take away from the debate 
you were talking about? Because we can look at these people and say, oh, they're crazies. Oh, they're whatever. Fill in the blank. Yes, but there is a fact which we've seen, which is that in other countries, uh, they're also crazy people. America does not have a monopoly on craziness or violence. It has uh, an unusually high level of crazy people who commit mass acts of public violence with weaponry that is legal as a result of the fact that it's legal. Those people can't commit those crimes in other countries with the same facility, and we, they can be stopped, and the traffic and the weaponry that they use can be stopped. And to everybody else on earth, it's self-evident that this is something deeply flawed in the American system and the American psyche. Philip, if, if I may push back just a bit, there are countries that you go to where the outcome of an election leads to 1,200 people dead. Uh, and, and that's happening with some sort of weaponry, isn't it? Uh, it is happening with weaponry. Sometimes it's with other weaponry. And absolutely nobody is defending that as the ideal of their constitutional system. It, how are you struck by the response to uh, the Boston Marathon attack as compared to 9-11? In 9-11, it was, it was clear that there was a concerted attack against the country that involved a spectacular feat of taking over the planes and knocking down buildings, a mass death toll in the thousands of a kind we'd never seen before, and was immediately identified as one of the most major acts of international terrorism ever, and an attack on the United States, and uh, therefore created uh, a war response. I mean, the fact is, we don't really have a theory or know what happened in Boston. What we know is we're vulnerable, and that we have this amazing internal response. I do think there's been a lot of impressive and healthy restraint in the press about speculation and, if anything, slapping down anybody who tries to speculate too loudly or confidently uh, that they know what this might be and therefore who to blame, how to blame it, what it tells us about our moment. And the potential changes, alterations to uh, our way of life, more barricades, Somewhat, but people learn to soldier on. I mean, England during the IRA bombings, Israel through many of these periods, many places that have a Western free press and life that goes on much like our own without people being all barricaded or fortressed. Sadly, you know, people adapt. That's the terrible thing, that there are things to adapt to, but uh, people do adapt. And I, I'm not trying to be in any way foreboding. I'm saying I, I don't think that... Uh, what we're seeing necessarily has to be met with a reaction that kind of shuts us down. We have to be very careful, I think, of the self-inflicted wounds in response to the wounds that get dealt us. Philip Gurevich is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author most recently of The Ballad of Abu Ghraib. Philip, thank you. Thank you. In Texas, people are still trying to make sense of a massive explosion last night at a fertilizer plant. The blast left at least 15 people dead and injured 160 others. It flattened homes and businesses in the small farming community. Authorities say at this point there's no reason to suspect it was anything other than an industrial accident. The explosion in the town of West could be heard dozens of miles away. That kind of devastation has happened before in Toulouse, France in 2001. Chris Bachman was in Toulouse covering the story for the BBC. Yesterday's explosion in Texas brought back a flood of memories. I have to say that I immediately had a flashback myself to what we experienced here. The, what, the flames which you're experiencing right now in Texas, this was really more just the capital of glass 
it would just ricochet through the whole city, shockwave after shockwave. Thousands of windows popped out of, out of offices, out of um, homes. There was a really nasty, smelling cloud floating over the city. And there was no way that people could talk to each other because the mobile phone signals were down. So you had a real chaos and 31 people died. I think the actual physical injuries were around 8,000. And it took years and years for many people to get over the, the trauma of that. Anytime they heard a blast of, uh, of a car, it was the biggest industrial accident in France since the Second World War, if that gives you an idea just how grave the situation was. And, and not only all that, but the accident occurred 10 days after the uh, September terrorist attacks here in the U.S., and, and I imagine everyone was quite jittery after that. That's right. I mean, I, I mean looking back on it now, I remember in the, the hours after that explosion here, people were saying to me, is it terrorism-related? Is it terrorism-related? And, and in fact, even now, as we look back, which was more than a decade later, no one's really got a full answer to that, whether it was terrorism or not, or whether it was just negligence. A court has said it was negligence by the company that basically stacked all these chemicals badly. But there's always been speculation, and there still is a wide belief by a large um, minority of the population in Toulouse, having come after 9-11, that um, it was terrorism-related. Uh, but that's just speculation, really. Chris, one of the positive outcomes of this massive explosion in Toulouse in 2001 was that tougher regulation was passed um, to regulate um, the manufacture of uh, these chemicals. Has that changed anything at all? Yeah, Aaron, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I think there was a lot of outcry afterwards that what was this factory doing being located so close to a residential population? Uh, and swiftly after that, uh, laws were passed in the French parliament that um, factories had to be scaled to how dangerous they could be in to human health. And so laws were passed were say, which basically said these factories have to be moved out uh, of potentially built-up areas. But it quickly became clear that there are actually thousands of dangerous, potentially dangerous factories across France. And it was the bill which is simply too high to move them out. And I think realism crept in. And after the first, let's say, early push of two or three years, it's pretty much gone back to the back burner. Chris Bachman is the BBC's correspondent in southern France. Coming up next, a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan puts his military training to use on the streets of Boston on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. When President Obama came to Boston today to give words of comfort to the city, he also paid tribute to those people who rushed in to help the injured near the marathon finish line. Benny is a first responder on the scene. He's a Boston firefighter, and he's asked that we not use his last name. Like so many of the first responders at the marathon, Benny is also a veteran. He served as a Marine in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He just never thought he'd be putting his combat experience to use at home. On Monday, um, we were responding to a, a, just a routine call on Commonwealth Ave and Exeter Street. Some college kids had a barbecue, you know, typical call, told the college kids to get your barbecue, put it away. And uh, that's when we heard the first blast. Um, it was a really distinctive sound of an explosion, which I'm, I haven't heard since 2006. But once you hear it, it's, it, it, you know what it was. How many of your fellow firefighters are veterans? Uh, right now, I'd say about 80 percent. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the Boston Fire Department, uh, Massachusetts, has a veterans' preference, so which I support. I think it's a great thing, and especially now, it's 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 the best thing, really. I mean, because we're prepared more than anybody. On that note, the scene has been described by many as horrific, and a lot of the people that were already there were people who had done a lot of medical work, but not you know not yeah. to this extent with a mass casualty event. I wonder if you think. As a veteran and, and with your fellow veterans, you were a little more capable of handling the situation. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I know that the other companies that were there with us, I looked around, I saw fellow firefighters, a lot of them were combat veterans who mm. served in Iraq or Afghanistan or both. And basically, it's, it's when you first get in the combat situation, you know, the first time you get shot at and everyone has a different experience, but usually you sort of freeze up a little bit, you know, but you you snap out of it quick and it's sort of that initial shock that, and then after that, you just do your job. You rely on your training, you just do your job and you're able to focus and you kind of detach yourself from thinking about the emotional side of it and, you know, people screaming and the terror of it and you just, you just need to get these people out of there, stop their bleeding and get them out. There are a lot of first responders now who, at this stage, themselves need some help because of what they saw. Is there anything, any bit of advice that you could give them? You know, talk to people about it. Even in the military now, they, they just, they encourage you to talk about what happened, opposed to our fathers and grandfathers' generation where they just didn't talk about anything and they stuff it. And so talk about it, don't drink. You uh, grew up here in Boston along the marathon route. Yeah, uh, Cleveland Circle. Right, down right in street. Cleveland Circle. Um, what does the, the marathon mean to you? You know, as a teenager, it's party time. But, you know, as a kid, it's it's one of the biggest days of the year. It's just, it's kind of symbolic of our city. You worried about uh, what happens next year and the years to come? Definitely. You just need to prepare, you know, for everything. That was Benny, a Boston firefighter and war veteran. The type of bomb used in at least one of the Boston attacks is one that many recent vets are all too familiar with. It was fashioned out of a pressure cooker. The devices are common in kitchens around the world, and instructions for turning them into bombs are distressingly easy to find. But the world's Alex Galifant, for one, hopes that their misuse as devices to wound and kill won't obscure their value for bringing people together. There is something particularly pernicious about repurposing a cooking pot as a bomb, putting a tool for food to such obscene ends. Could there be two objects in starker opposition? So let's reclaim the pressure cooker, an object that, frankly, many American kitchens have long forgotten. My friend Andrea hadn't seen one here, for instance. Never. I don't think I've ever seen one until I was in India. Andrea, journalist Andrea Wenzel, first used a pressure cooker while she was working in Hyderabad in India. She stayed with a family there, learning to make local dishes with one. And the woman was an amazing cook. In fact, the pressure cooker is common throughout South Asia. Not hard to see why. It cooks food quickly and efficiently. You want to cook some chickpeas. You know, a normal thing, it'll take forever. In the pressure cooker, it's much faster. And probably takes less gas that way also when you're you know, cooking on a stove. Later, Andrea moved to Afghanistan, and the pressure cooker was ubiquitous in kitchens there, too. It led to new dishes, new friendships, and new insights. 
In fact, Andrea Wenzel came to see food in general as a means to resolve conflict. Between family or between villages, I mean, if there's an accident and someone's injured or worse, you know, someone might show up at your front door with a sheep and a bag of rice and you know, ask for forgiveness. It's not entirely as simple as that, she adds. In such situations, the food is paired with nuanced negotiation too. But the food anchors the diplomacy. I asked Paul Rockauer about that idea. He's a food lover with a master's in public diplomacy, and he's researched some of the ways entire countries have used food to extend themselves around the world. Rockauer calls the field gastro diplomacy. No antacids required. The first country to really conduct gastro diplomacy was Thailand. They had a, a program called the Global Thai Program, which they introduced in 2003, which was meant to expand the number of Thai restaurants around the globe. And they gave soft loan money to, to help promote the restaurants, and they、um, made access to Thai ingredients more available for Thai chefs. And basically, they decided that the best way that they could communicate their culture was by using their food in the restaurants as forward cultural outposts. South Korea has had a gastro diplomatic program too, says Rockauer, in part to distinguish Korean culture from that of Japan. They even supported a program called the Bibimbap Backpackers. This、uh, group of Koreans who were traveling around making the Korean dish bibimbap for all the people they met along the way. Peru, Taiwan, all sorts of countries have been getting in on gastro diplomacy, including, as of last fall, the United States. The State Department launched a diplomatic culinary partnership. Which connects chefs from around the world with people in the industry over here. Then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton introduced the initiative. Now, food isn't traditionally thought of as a diplomatic tool, but I think it's the oldest diplomatic tool. Certainly, some of the most meaningful conversations I've had with my counterparts around the world have taken place over breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. All of this is to say, making food connects people, and that includes the pressure cooker. A tool for food that, after the events in Boston, deserves to be rehabilitated in Google searches and in kitchens as quickly as possible. Take a look at product reviews on YouTube, for instance, where, in a country famed for its pressure cookers, an excitable German offers praise for the device.、Um, I've been using this baby like for quite some while.、Um, it's easy to use. <laughs> I like to to cook soups with it. Make very soft. You can't imagine how easy it is to make with this pressure cooker. Some soft. And if you still need convincing, consider the pressure cooker's patriotic pedigree. During the Second World War, aluminium was regulated, and so the manufacture of new pressure cookers was limited. But with fuel and food shortages, the cookers became less of a convenience and more of a necessity. So those Americans who did have pressure cookers shared them with their neighbors. Together. They made the best of hard times. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, amateur detectives sift through online evidence on the Boston attacks. Some complain it could scapegoat innocence, but the site's users seem to be policing themselves. When somebody tries to engage in, say, racial profiling or try to make allegations for which there's very little evidence, there's a real backlash from the community, and often quite a vicious one. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. 
I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The investigation into the Boston Marathon is proceeding, in the words of Homeland Security Director Janet Napolitano, apace. Investigators are sifting through thousands of videos and pictures taken by professionals and amateurs alike at the crime scene. But some websites are also getting involved. Sites like 4chan and Reddit are asking users to pour over pictures and video of the bombings to try to help with the investigation. To get more on this, I spoke with Alfred Hermida, an associate professor at the University of British Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. I asked him first to tell me a bit more about sites like Reddit and 4chan. Think of it like online collectives of people who are usually very tech-savvy. Quite often they tend to be male. They are usually younger. And they have an interest in all sorts of things that are going on. But what we've seen recently is places like 4chan, like Reddit, or even the Anonymous Collective, taking on issues of social justice. That they see things that are happening that they feel frustrated either at the official response or that they feel they can help, and they start interceding. I took a look at the Reddit channel. They're calling themselves now the RBI, the Reddit Bureau of Investigation. And it's kind of a funny, quirky name, but some are, are really concerned because if you look at their page, there are a whole lot of pictures of people with backpacks circled. It creates suspects out of people who were just watching the race. It really depends on how you view this. Uh, when you look at something like Reddit, what's happening is a conversation, a discussion. It's like being a fly on the wall in the newsroom or in a police office, and you're listening to that discussion. So it's look at it less like they're publishing information and more like they're discussing information. They're saying, I've seen this picture, what do you make of it? And collaboratively working together, trying to identify what's going on and figure out what's happening there. They're trying to provide information for the FBI. That sounds helpful. It sounds benign. And yet pictures that these groups have put together were on the cover of the New York Post, or at least the online version of the New York Post. Certainly seems like it may have made suspects out of a couple of guys. But then think about who made the decision to post it on a mainstream media outlet. What happens is that picture is then taken out of context. What's happening there is that somebody may post a picture saying, what do you make of this? And asking the collective to bring their brains together and saying, let's try to figure out what's going on here. The problem becomes is when you take that image out of context and you then publish it saying, Reddit says this is a suspect. That's not what the Reddit users are saying. What they're saying is we're trying to help in whatever way we can. And part of what I was noticing on the conversation of Reddit was a backlash against mainstream media for taking some of their discussions and taking it out of context and misrepresenting what they were trying to do. And how about people who might try to do that on the sites themselves? This is what's really interesting when you look at these discussions. When somebody tries to do that and, say, engage in, say, racial profiling or try to make allegations for which there's very little evidence, there's a real backlash from the community, and often quite a vicious one. What tends to happen is you get this very self-correcting mechanism taking place when others jump in and tell that person to shut up, tell them not to spread this information. I I wonder, Professor, if uh, there's any indication that what these sites are trying to do actually works, and if perhaps um, officials, the FBI and others, are tapping into them. I think it's very hard to know at this stage. This is all very, very new. 
And I think the initial reaction from authorities is to be rather suspicious of this kind of activity. After all, we're used to a world where police investigate and we watch from the outside and expect them to tell us what are the results of that investigation. But much like what's happening in, in journalism, what's happening in other disciplines, where individuals can take on some of those roles, we're seeing here individuals who are very tech savvy, who might have the digital forensic skills that are highly needed for this kind of investigation, that they're coming together and saying, we have something to contribute. The the, so the big issue really is how do you channel that? And in some ways, you know, the authorities don't have a way of channeling the discussions happening on Reddit, don't have a way of channeling the expertise of some of these people who might be able to actually help with identifying what's happening in some pictures, help the police deal with the massive information. Alfred Hermida teaches journalism at the University of British Columbia. Thank you. My pleasure. As we've mentioned, President Obama spoke at an interfaith service in Boston today to help people deal with what happened here on Monday afternoon. He was preceded by numerous religious leaders from the Boston area, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and Muslim. One of those who spoke was Nasser Wadadi. He's chair of the New England Interfaith Council, and he offered a personal story to help provide comfort. What happened on Monday has shocked and horrified us, but it has also brought us together. I come before you to share the message of my community's scripture. I want to cite a Quranic passage that I studied when I was seven years old. I was living at the time in Damascus, Syria. On one afternoon while walking back home from school, I experienced the terror of a car bomb that exploded on my route. I will never forget the sound of the blast, the confused rush of humanity, and the anger and the fear these feelings returned on Monday. What gave me comfort at that time is something that may bring comfort to all of us today. It is a line from the Muslim Holy Scripture, from Surah Al-Ma'idah. The passage declares that it is inspired by the Jewish tradition, by a decree to the children of Israel, that whoever kills a soul, it is as if he killed mankind entirely. And whoever saves a life, it is as if he saved all of mankind. On Boylston Street on Monday afternoon, next to a great public library that bears amongst many names that of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we saw souls murdered, but also lives saved. Nasser Wadadi of the New England Interfaith Council talking about a long-ago explosion in Damascus and the bombings here. These attacks are a reminder of what's all too common for people in Iraq. On Monday alone, dozens were killed in bombings across Baghdad. And just today, a bombing in a cafe claimed even more lives. It happened just days before Iraqis vote in provincial elections. Jane Araf is a Baghdad-based correspondent for Al Jazeera English and the Christian Science Monitor. She says the Boston bombings did make headlines in Iraq. And there was quite a lot of sympathy, a lot of feeling as well, of course, though, that at least some part of the world now knows what Iraqis feel like. But over that, quite a lot of sympathy for the victims and a statement from the prime minister here expressing his condolences. Was there any suggestion that, um, you know, America is reaping what it sowed or anything like that? 
there were the usual calls to that effect from from the usual groups and some statements as well that this was the work of al-Qaeda, even though that uh, certainly doesn't appear to be the case, and that it was the United States that has helped foster al-Qaeda and, and opened the doors in Iraq to al-Qaeda. So that was behind some of the statements. But most of them were, were certainly more pragmatic, and there was quite a lot of empathy there with the pictures that people were seeing from Boston. Now, for the past few days, we've been focused on um, people's reaction to the marathon attack, the shock, the trauma, the horror. But, you know, as we've mentioned, this kind of thing is much more regular there in Baghdad. Can you explain a little bit what it's like to live with the ongoing reality of explosions? In a way, it becomes a terrible sort of normal in the sense that you're always prepared if you're in a car to see something explode in front of you. You're always prepared to be stalled in traffic behind a police convoy or at a checkpoint where they're checking for explosives. You're prepared to see glass shatter if you see a big expanse of glass. And you're certainly prepared to hear the bad news at any time that someone you love has been caught in an explosion because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it doesn't really shock people very much anymore. In fact, it's very difficult to shock them. It obviously saddens them and angers them, but this has become a country, very sadly, that's come to expect violence. And you see it in Baghdad. In Baghdad now, we're approaching Election Day, and the streets are full of armored vehicles and soldiers getting into place. People are talking about a ban on cars driving, even though the government has assured them there won't be a ban. They still believe there will be, and there probably will be. And that's because any car that drives around is considered a suspected car bomb. It's that kind of city, and it's become, in many parts of the country, that kind of atmosphere where people are just waiting for attacks to happen. You know, Jane, the violence in Iraq, the violence we're talking about is kind of foreboding, but it's with the backdrop of elections coming up this weekend. You're right. It is a foreboding backdrop, particularly because there have been at least 14 candidates who have been assassinated, shot dead and targeted killings for the most part. Despite that, they are going ahead with voting in 12 of the provinces and people will turn out, some of them, they're expecting maybe 50-60%. And the main thing is really that these will be the first elections that the Iraqis are doing pretty much entirely by themselves. In the last elections, four years ago, there were almost 90,000 U.S. troops here providing a safety net if things went wrong. This time there's no safety net. So it's a pretty big test. It's a test of security. It's a test of what happens next year in national elections. And it's a test of how interested people really are in this concept of elections and how disillusioned they are with the politicians they have now. Jane Araf is a former CNN Baghdad bureau chief. She now reports for Al Jazeera and the Christian Science Monitor. Jane, thank you. Thank you, Erin. Things have never been pretty in the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, but this spring has been especially ugly. Prisoner protests morphed from mass hunger strikes to all-out violence last Saturday. Guards stormed a prison camp where prisoners were refusing to leave a common area, and prisoners fought back. Earlier this week, we spoke with Carol Rosenberg of the Miami Herald about the clashes. She was en route to Guantanamo at the time. Now she's there, and she's been allowed to see the part of the prison where the fighting took place. 
I asked her what she saw on her guided tour. What we saw was the aftermath of this violence. We saw a display put on by the military of what they said were makeshift weapons that were used on them as the guards came in to push the men into their cells. We saw the piled in a corner black helmets and shields and, and, and kind of what you would call hockey gear for the guards who took the action on Saturday morning before dawn. Um, what we didn't see is the wounded. You know, before dawn on Saturday, these 12 troop squads charged inside the camp and sort of clashed with the, with the captives. The military said they were wielding broom handles and had a metal rod and cracked a couple of guards on the head. They had helmets, and we didn't see the prisoner whose head was apparently split open when the military said he whacked his own head against the cell door. What they've shown us is a camp where the order has been restored, where, where it looks like the Guantanamo of, I would say, five, six years ago, before they engaged in this experiment of trying to let them live POW-style, um, in, in, in bunkhouses or collectively. This does sound like a, a rather nasty event. Um, there, there was talk you've written about inmates trying to douse guards with urine, with feces. Um, is there any way to confirm either side of the story, really? Nobody was here to watch it. There was no independent monitors. You know, this happened Saturday morning, just hours after the Red Cross left from a two-week or so mission to check on the health of the, of the detainees. And it occurred about three days before they let the media in for the first time since I was here a month before. So there was no independent way to see it. They claim that there's no video and that this was over in about five hours. They have shown us some pretty nasty homemade weapons, room handles from when they lived communally and when they were able to sweep out their areas a metal rod pulled from an exercise machine, um, homemade implements that they said were quite dangerous, some of which they said were not really turned on them. The resistance, they said, was quick, but that once they pushed them out of their cells and put them in these lockdown in, in empty individual cells, they showed us shanks and different kinds of um, weapons and clubs that had been found in the cells for what the prison said might have been used at another time. Carol, you've been going to Guantanamo for years, seen a lot of the ups and downs there. Um, I, I wonder if you've seen any change in the guards' demeanor. Well, I have to tell you, I was here a month ago, and the guards were very anxious, and there was absolutely no ex reflection of confidence in what they were doing. As I said, I think the, uh, the detainees were in charge inside their blocks, and the guards were looking in, and they were pretty angry. Um, the detainees had covered up the cameras inside their individual cells, kind of blinding the guard force. And if not anger, there was a frustration on their part that they couldn't be in charge. Come back now, a month later, and they're feeling pretty confident that they've got it under control, that they're now in charge, and the detainees, uh, the captives, are their charges, and they, they can keep an eye on them. The Miami Herald's Carol Rosenberg. She spoke with us from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Carol, thank you. You bet. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World.
Former Pakistan President Pervez Musharraf is a wanted man. He fled a courthouse in Islamabad today after judges revoked bail and ordered his arrest. Musharraf rushed out of the courtroom surrounded by bodyguards and fled in his bulletproof vehicle. He's now holed up in his heavily guarded farmhouse on the outskirts of Islamabad. The BBC's Mohammed Waziri was in the courthouse. Mohammed, if you would, paint a picture for us. Um, was Musharraf actually there in the courtroom and then uh, ran out? Yes, he basically came in uh, with his security guards on a bulletproof vehicle and went inside and he was there. And the security guards protected the entrance of the courtroom. And he was there when the judge uh, said the verdict to arrest him and asked the police to, to arrest him. And did anyone make any moves toward arresting him or did they just let him run? Uh, Yes, they went towards him, but uh, he was protected by the security guard. So, you know, it was a sort of a confusion. To me, it seemed that they did not expect such a verdict. In fact, when I talked to one of his legal team members, uh, he uh, said that it was a bailable uh, case, and therefore they did not expect that. So he did not expect it either. And But in that sort of confusion, he was whisked away, out of the courtroom, into the yard where people were, and then out on uh, the cars and went away. And they deny the fact that he actually fled. What they are saying is that uh, there was no authority to arrest him, and therefore they went away, and he was taken away by his guards. Mohammed, is, is it normal for powerful people like that to show up to court with bodyguards? Yes and no. It, uh, you know, Pakistan is a very dangerous place, and therefore something like that happens from time to time. But what is a bit sort of perhaps not odd, but sort of extra was uh, the case of Mr. Musharraf. We should not forget that he was an ex-president of Pakistan, and he was also the ex-military chief of Pakistan, and therefore his security was totally sort of, we can say, uh, different. Well, no, I have not seen such a sort of uh, guards and bodyguards for other dignitaries when, when these things happen. Mohammed, if you would, um, let's take a, a step back and have you explain to us why Musharraf was in the court in the first place. Let me put it this way. There are several cases against Mr. Musharraf. Uh, there is a case on treason charges. There are uh, cases regarding uh, the, the killing of Benazir Bhutto. This particular case was regarding the detaining of some judges in 2007. There was an emergency announced, uh, the constitution was uh, suspended, and some of the judges were actually arrested and detained. So this particular case was for that particular incident. And now one of the judges you're talking about, uh, who was jailed by Musharraf, is now sitting on this case. Yeah. Uh, uh, shouldn't he have recused himself from the case? I really do not know why this uh, did not happen or why Musharraf's team did not actually ask ask for it, but that never happened. And uh, Mohammed Waziri, what comes next for uh, Pervez Musharraf? Uh, his political future is in tatters in a sense. And uh, if any of these cases against him would be proven, especially the treason case, then there would be a lot of, uh, you know, problems uh, which could even go to capital punishment or uh, life imprisonment. 
So basically for him, it's very, very difficult to get out of all these uh, sort of issues that are, uh, are against him. Although uh, his legal team all the time is saying that what the measures that he took was not necessarily of his own and he was not necessarily the only person responsible uh, for what happened, especially what happened in 2007. Any chance that he'll turn himself into the court or does he appeal? His legal team is trying to actually appeal. However, there are reports that the Supreme Court would not accept it because of various legal issues involved. Also, at the same time, there might be some kind of a compromise at the end of the day that President Musharraf on this particular case and other cases might be actually under house arrest. The BBC's Mohammed Waziri in Islamabad, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. In China, people are entranced by a story of their current leader, President Xi Jinping. Here's the world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. It's a favorite storyline in Chinese period dramas that ancient emperors would dress down and go among ordinary people to find out what was really happening. So when news broke today in the China-friendly Hong Kong newspaper Takong Bao that Chinese President Xi Jinping had taken a taxi like an ordinary guy, China's internet started buzzing. There were lots of comments of approval. Some called it a stunt and said if Xi really wanted to find out what ordinary people are thinking, all he needed to do was read Weibo, China's version of Twitter, since more than 300 million Chinese use it. And there were skeptics. They noticed that this supposed taxi ride had happened the evening of March 1st. Why did it take so long to report it? The Takung Bao story said she and a friend took an early evening ride of five miles, lasting 26 minutes. The cab driver was quoted as saying he asked she if people told him how much he looked like the president. And she chuckled and said, you're the first driver to recognize me. The taxi driver was quoted as saying they talked about Beijing's infamous pollution She reportedly said, it's easy to produce and hard to bring under control. Now, China's state news agency Xinhua is denying this ride ever happened. Takung Bao has apologized for getting it wrong. All mention of Xi's supposed taxi ride has been scrubbed from Weibo, and searches for Beijing taxi are now blocked. It's hard to know what really happened or why. She does present himself as a no-nonsense man of the people who's already issued decrees cutting down on perks and frills and banquets for government officials. This plays well to ordinary Chinese who are resentful of the considerable wealth concentrated among the party elite. So did the story about the taxi ride. But being taken for a ride by the story? Not so much. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. And finally, a story from New Zealand. Yesterday, lawmakers there did what lawmakers in several other countries have done. They voted to legalize same-sex marriage. The eyes are 77. The nose are 44. But then something unusual happened. I understand... People watching in the gallery overlooking the chamber began to sing, and the legislators joined in. The song is Pokere Kare Ana, a Maori love song.
And you can check out the video of that song at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great day, and thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.